Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Today's panel will focus on whether and how we can cooperate to limit the human and economic damage caused by this global pandemic and the deterioration in U.S.-China relations. Now on to our panelists. Since their bios are on the event page of our website, let me just say that these are four of America's and China's outstanding economic thinkers who have contributed enormously to U.S.-China relations through their positions in government, through their track, through our track two dialogues, their writings, and many other fora. We have Yao Yang, who is our partner in this track two dialogue, and it's the director of CCER and the dean of Peking University's National School of Development. We have Lu Feng, who briefs many of our delegations who go to China and is a professor of economics at the National School of Development at PKU. We have Nick Lardy, who's a vice chair of the National Committee and is the Anthony M. Solomon Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for, Economic, for International Economics. And finally, we have Bob Rubin, who was America's 70th Secretary of the Treasury, is a participant in our Track 2 dialogue and is currently co-chairman emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations. So with no further ado, I'll ask Bob to kick it off with five to seven minutes of comments. We'll then go on to Lu Feng, Nick, and Yao Yang. I'll have a discussion with them, and then we'll open the floor to questions from our attendees. Bob, thank you so much for your service, and thank you for joining us this morning. I will begin, Steve, by commenting broadly on the U.S.-China relationship, and, and then I'll, I'll comment more specifically for a few moments on how it affects dealing with these twin crises, which obviously are of monumental importance to each of our countries and the global economy. About a year ago, I moderated a discussion at the Council of Foreign Relations with the Foreign Minister of China. And what I said is something that I've long believed and believe now, which is that there are enormous complexities and uncertainties around the relationship between China and the United States. I say those complexities have increased, unfortunately. But while that is all very uncertain, what seems to me to be not at all uncertain and not at all complex is that the 21st century, life in the 21st century, is going to be enormously affected, for better or for worse, by whether or not the United States and China can establish a reasonable and sensible constructive relationship, or we have an adversarial relationship. Furthermore, when you look at our two economies, I believe that each of our economies faces huge challenges. Having said that, it does seem to me that the probabilities are high that our very different political systems will meet the challenges that we need to meet to succeed. And I suspect that the odds are pretty high, probably very high, that we will both do very well over the decades ahead. And I think it is, is, although there's certainly no guarantee, and as I said a moment ago, it does depend, I think, very largely on whether our domestic 
political systems, the two very different systems, are able to meet our challenges. I also think, although I know this is a view that is not broadly, is not held, although I know there's a view that many in our country don't hold, and I suspect the same may be true in China, I think it is enormously interest of both our countries that the other ones succeed economically. I have an impression, and I, I have had this for quite some time, maybe right, it may be wrong, that there are those in China, maybe many in China, who, I was at the U.S. Embassy some years ago, and the chief of station said to me that many in China think that the United States is leaving the station and China is entering the station, and that we will not be successful in the years and decades ahead. I think that is almost surely wrong, highly likely wrong. Similarly, there are many in the United States who have views about the Chinese economy that seem to me wrong. One is a, is a serious tendency to underweight the challenges that China faces, demographic, environmental, political, and, and so many others. And the other is to overweight those challenges and to believe that the Chinese government is unlikely to meet its challenges. As I say, I think both of them are likely wrong. As has often been said, but I think too seldom really understood and internalized, that there are usually consequential challenges, transnational challenges, that can enormously, I think even catastrophically, affect both of our countries that neither one or any country is strong enough to deal with by itself. And the obvious examples are climate change, nuclear weapons, the future pandemics, as we unfortunately tragically learned in the case of the coronavirus, and others. We can certainly choose, as we seem to be at the present time, not to work together and to move toward an ever more adversarial relationship, but I think that path will truly be catastrophic for both of our countries. Because I think that path greatly increases the risk that these catastrophic risks will materialize in ways that will be deeply damaging. Also, we would both greatly benefit from a global economic regime with read upon norms with respect to trade and trans cross-border cross investment. In the United States, I think in, until we get through the election, I think the politics around China are going to be very difficult. And I, I think that's inevitable. And it often happens in, in U.S. electoral period, election periods. My hope is that after the election and come January, that independently of who wins, although I think it probably is somewhat more than somewhat effect, could be somewhat more than affected by who wins, but that in either case, there's at least a reasonable chance that there will be a more objective evaluation of the benefits of a constructive relationship about our mutual self-interest, and that we will go into a mode more of competing economically and geopolitically, hopefully within the context of international norms, at the same time, work together on our, on our mutual self-interest with respect to the issues, kinds of issues I mentioned before, and also recognizing there are real differences between us, particularly with respect to human rights, but also many other matters. I think, unfortunately, a major obstacle to that kind of vision, certainly in the United States, but I have the impression this is true in China as well, is that the animosity exists not only at the government level, but also more broadly in our societies. I think there's plenty of blame to go around and we could each point our fingers in all kinds of different ways with respect to how the other has acted. 
And as I say, I think there's plenty of blame to go around. But if we're going to move forward, I think we have to put that behind us and then focus on the vision, or if you will, the, the sense of what our relationship should be that I, I mentioned a moment ago. Having said that, we also have to be realistic and, and recognize that even if our respect, if either of our, either, in each of our countries, that even if we adopt a constructive approach or attempt to adopt a constructive approach, the other may not be receptive. And so I think we do have to have contingency plans that relate to the notion or the possibility that the other will not, will not respond. But those, it seems to me that what's critically important is that the development of those plans not interfere with the movement toward a constructive relationship. On the, on the coronavirus itself, it seems to me we, we could benefit greatly by far more extensive sharing of data and research and the like. Unfortunately, at the government level, that'll probably be pretty difficult, at least for now. But it is happening at the university research level, and I think it's critical that the governments not interfere with what is going on at that level. On the economic crisis, I believe that each of us, the issues that each of us face need to be dealt with primarily, or predominantly actually, by our domestic political system. But the two countries certainly could work together to develop international norms with respect to trade and cross-border investment. And unfortunately, the globe is going in the wrong direction. And there's plenty of blame to go around on that, as I said. Going in the wrong direction, we could work together to reestablish effective and constructive norms. And there is another problem, which is the, there is a, many emerging market countries are facing what I think are catastrophic conditions. And that is not only a vast humanitarian problem, but I think it can enormously affect our countries as well. The spread of disease, uh, uh, immigration, various other areas, terrorism, et cetera. So hopefully we will work on all this together. I think, Steve, having these kinds of discussions is a, is a very constructive contribution <laughs> to trying to develop a better understanding in both of our countries of all that I've just discussed. Thank you. Yep. Great, Bob. Yep. Lou Fang. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I, I very much like uh, the talk by uh, Bob, and especially the point what will happen about uh, with regard to U.S. and the China relationships after the general election. You know, so we 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 believe. You know, at the beginning of last year, visit to D.C. and New York, we assume that maybe the worst time is the general election. But now, we're, we're not. Uh, that is sure anymore. Okay. Anyway, I would like to uh, divert a little bit in the topic, you know, to share and some uh, of my thoughts on how international community uh, should collaborate to cope with the current economic downturn. We all know that the pandemic not only caused uh, the once a century uh, public health crisis, but also brought about by, you know, and uh, worldwide economic downturn that is even more severe than the financial crisis, uh, you know, more than a decade ago. Uh, so when the financial turmoil occurred first in the Wall Street in more than 10 years ago, then spread to the world, caused and the financial, uh, global financial crisis, actually the international community then, you know, and united together, you know, on the basis creation of the uh, G20 and the summit platform, and uh, together, you know, fight against the uh, crisis on the belief of the principle that the global crisis should be fought against with, you know, and the global approach. 
So I think this kind of principle is also relevant in the current and uh, circumstances. So the world community should also adopt the principle to combat the economic downturn, with special emphasis, in my understanding at least, in the following areas. You know, the number one, to combat uh, effectively, the economic crisis we need to the uh, for the first of all uh, strengthen the efforts to fight against the pandemics as the primary causes of the economic uh, crisis. Now we still have daily incremental growth of the uh, new cases around. 100,000 each day in recent days. So it is still a long way to go to achieve the final eradication of the coronavirus. The international cooperation uh, urgently, uh, urgently needed in the areas such as speed up uh, of the research, scientific research in delivering safe and efficient efficiency to cure, as well as a vaccine. You know, we also should pay attention to the long term. We also need to uh, share medical supplies of high qu quality, helping the poor countries to dealing with the uh, difficulties, uh, difficult situations. We also need to pay attention to the long term issues, such as how to improve information sharing, transparency, strengthening, and improving the functioning of WHO creating the global uh, stockpile of the medical supplies as part of the preparedness for the future pandemics. Uh, number two, I think international community need to collaborate the proactive macroeconomic policies as the urgent responses to the economic crisis. So far, various unprecedented level uh, scale of economic stimulus packages has been designed and implemented for almost all uh, the major economies. Uh, why specific stimulus packages uh, of different scale and structure are the matter determined on the basis of national uh, governments? There have also been, you know, we can witness also been active consultation and discussions in the process of macroeconomic policy formation in the recent months in various ways in the platforms of the G20 Ministry of Finance, as well as uh, Central uh, Bank Governance Meeting, uh, even the video conference and even the video summits of G20 international organizations such as the IMF and the uh, World Bank, G7, as well as regional institutions arrangements such as the ASEAN plus three in this part of the world. The similar practices should be continuously pursued so as to avoid negative spillovers of this macroeconomic policy and maximizing the positive policy impacts. Uh, number three, I think we need to collaborate so as to preventing and controlling financial risks. Though the initial shocks of the pandemic on the stock markets in the US and other countries has been, you know, and uh, absorbed and uh, dealt with quite successfully through huge coordinated monetary intervention of the unprecedented scale. Other financial risks are emerging or increasing, especially in the emerging economies as well as developing economies, you know, because of the either 
uh, interruption of the international payments of the, you know, as a result from devastating effects of the pandemics over exports for many countries, or collapse of, you know, um, the primary uh, prices for the oil and uh, bulk commodity markets in recent months, all simply because the deteriorating of the quality of assets for banks and other financial institutions. There are four pillars of the uh, financial safety network uh, for the global world, for the world at the moment. So individual countries reserve uh, bilateral swaps, you know, uh, among different uh, countries uh, for the central banks. Uh, as well as the uh, regional arrangements such as the, uh, you know, CIMAN in, in, in ASEAN plus three uh, areas, as well as multilateral institutions such as the IMF, IMF. So of all these four components, the three excluding first one, you know, they need international coordinations. So I think we need to pay attention in this area. Fourthly, the, the number four, we need to make mutual efforts to secure the global food security. The, though the direct impact of the pandemic on grain production is limited, the global food security situation faced special challenges this year, mainly because two reasons. Number one, some grain and cereal exporting countries Temporarily, temporarily, temporarily suspended exports of wheat, rice, and other grains, even including vegetables. Okay. Uh, additionally, number two, additionally, the plague of the desert locust has struck the countries in the Horn of Africa, such as Djibouti, Somalia, uh, Ethiopia, and even threatening part of the uh, West. Uh, uh, Pakistan as well as India. So, so far the international community have done solid work in stabilizing the situation. For example, both ASEAN plus three leader video conference on uh, 14 April as well as G20 agricultural minister uh, video conference meeting on 21 April all discussed the matter and expressed commitments in assuring the stable functioning of the international grain market. So now the situation has been stabilized a little bit, but we still need to vigilant on this area. Finally, uh, the, uh, number four, I think international collaboration are particularly needed to manage the upcoming process of adjustments of the global value chain, as well as the economic uh, globalization. I don't have the time to mention this, elaborate off this point, okay, because my time is limited, um, is exhausting. So the final point I want to make is that now the world economy is still un under the tremendous pressure. Uh, China's economy are already on the track of the recovery thanks to the more effective controlling domestic uh, epidemic, but it may not be able to converge to the potential growth rate on the annual basis until next year. The economics of the US and the EU and other important Western countries may not recover to the pre-crisis level until the year after next year, according to the market uh, projection. Also, the already made international cooperation has been achieved positive results. There are still wide gaps between the necessity and the reasonable expectation on the one hand in this area and what should be done on the other, 
On the other hand, the international community needs to further strengthen cooperation to combat the existing and upcoming economic challenges. Thank you. Okay, great. Nick, Lardy, you're up. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Steve. Thanks for organizing this. I'm happy to appear with uh, my colleagues. And um, I'm going, quite frankly, be much more pessimistic than either Bob or Lu Feng. I think in the United States, what we have seen almost from the beginning of the Trump administration is what in China would be called a two-line struggle between moderates in terms of their policy towards China and hawks. And I think what has happened in recent months is that the hawks have gained a decisive upper hand. And in part, it's because of the pandemic. And I think this is reflected extremely strongly in this new document that was released about 10 days ago, which is called United States Strategic Approach to the People's Republic of China. Uh, this is available on the White House website, and it is uh, an attempt to set forth a coherent policy for uh, U.S. relations with China. It is extremely negative. I think the chances for any cooperation uh, on a significant level between China and the United States over the balance of this administration is zero. And uh, I don't share Bob's view that things might get better if Trump is reelected but I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> now, let me just say, this is a document that wholeheartedly embraces what they refer to as policies of strategic competition. There's no talk about engagement or win-win or anything like that. All of the, uh, it's a full approach to decoupling. It talks extensively about reducing trade relationships, reducing particularly U.S. imports from China, and reducing the flow of technology. It doesn't address capital flows that Bob alluded to, but we can see in several dimensions this is coming uh, independently, even though it's not mentioned in the strategic uh, document. So I think we're going to see less trade, less capital flows, less technology flows. Uh, the document is almost, uh, and this is especially disappointing, the document is almost entirely defensive. There's nothing in it about U.S. policies that would help our economy and help to preserve our strengths in various areas of technology and so forth. It's all about slowing down China. Uh, as I say, it's, it's defense, not offense. Uh, even in the section where they talk about policies to promote American prosperity, the only specific thing they mention is strengthening our nuclear triad. There's nothing on economics or, you know, anything to do with income distribution or anything. It's all our nuclear uh, power. The document at one point does pay lip service, and this is our topic today, to potential areas of cooperation, but they don't give a single example. They're not talking about the transnational challenges that Bob mentioned or the de desirability of adopting international norms in new areas that would smooth uh, relations between uh, the two countries. Needless to say, of course, they can't mention climate change since uh, Trump doesn't seem to believe in that. So there's lip service to cooperation, but not a single word on what what areas those might be. So this is, a, this is a document that's entirely about competition, confrontation, not 
uh, cooperation. A couple more points. The message throughout this document is imposing costs on China. There's not the slightest recognition that this usually entails some costs on the United States. Uh, tariffs would be perhaps the most obvious example. Not only is there no mention of cost to the United States, there's no, no talk about costs, no talk about measuring costs, no, you know, the economists would want to know, okay, if this is your strategy, what, can, what costs can we impose compared to what costs we will have to endure ourselves? Um, there's lip service to uh, importance of U.S. allies in this effort, but there's no real evidence of efforts made in that direction. There's no hint of possible results. So I think it's a very, very discouraging document. And I think the Hawks, Navarro, and those around him have decisively won the internal battle on the way to deal with China. As I say, I think for the first three years or so, we had a two-line struggle, and we had a president who flitted back and forth uh, unpredictably between one camp and the other, sometimes saying, uh, we need more of this or that, and other times being very tough on China. But I think uh, the COVID and the combination of the COVID and the coming election has shifted the balance uh, entirely in favor of the Hawks. And I don't see any prospect that that's going to change. So I think we're in for a very, very uh, bad period in uh, economic relations between the two countries. Anything else to cheer us up, Nick? <laughs> Oh boy, uh, Yao Yang. I would say, go to the website and read the document. Maybe you can find some optimism in it. I, I can't. Uh, okay, my turn. Okay, um, I, I used to be quite optimistic about U.S.-China relations. Uh, uh, I remember more than ten years ago when I first met Steve to talk about the U.S.-China track to dollars. I had uh, that uh, optimism. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, this time I share a lot uh, with Nick. I become quite uh, pessimistic about the U.S.-China uh, relations. Um, I think uh, a new kind of Cold War is looming large of the two countries, right? Uh, so it, it's not just in our imagination. It has become uh, much more real uh, after uh, the coronavirus, right? Uh, so and let me just uh, talk uh, about uh, uh, several elements of this in, a new kind of Cold War. Uh, one was already mentioned by Nick, that is uh, economic confrontation. Um, I understand uh, if the United States uh, does not want to buy, say, Huawei's products, right? Um, but uh, Let's just think about the entity list. Right? Uh, the criteria are so weak. Right? It only says uh, if the uh, United States believes that a foreign company uh, is uh, threatening uh, American national uh, security, then that company can be put onto uh, the uh, entity list. Right? I, by now, I think uh, 33 Chinese companies are now on the list. Uh, most of them are in the high-tech area, right? Um, so that's uh, caused uh, a lot of discussions within China, right? 
to a large extent, uh, to me, uh, this action is very close to action of war, right? So the purpose is just to kill China's high-tech industry from the very beginning, right? I don't know if uh, the Trump administration has ever thought about uh, China's retaliation. China has not retaliated, right? But that doesn't mean that China does not have any means to retaliate, right? Um, even without the retaliation from China, it's going to be bad for American companies. Right? Think about the, those high-tech companies in the United States. 30%, I think in the Qualcomm case, 60% of its revenue comes from sales to China. Right? So if you stop selling to China, how can Qualcomm compete uh, in the international market? Right? So it's kind of a uh, killing a uh, golden uh, goods, okay, uh, for the American high-tech industry. Uh, second, on the geopolitical front, uh, we know that uh, the confrontation has begun a long time ago, uh, but after coronavirus has, has become uh, more of an issue, right? Um, you, you know, China uh, was the first country to walk out uh, the pandemic. So China offered uh, uh, humanitarian aid to many countries, including countries in Europe. Uh, Europe uh, has become uh, kind of nervous about China's uh, influence, but the United States, of course, has become much more nervous. Uh, uh, of course, uh, the, uh, China's pro uh, approach, a recent approach uh, by some diplomats uh, was also problematic. Uh, but overall, uh, this uh, it's kind of a geopolitical competition has already affected uh, the world efforts to combat uh, the pandemic. For example, uh, the, uh, the function of WHO. Right? Uh, last but not least, that uh, ideological confrontation. As Bob already said, we have uh, two different systems. Right? But, um, uh, during the pandemic, uh, China was uh, depicted uh, uh, even worse, right? Uh, you know, in Americans' minds, uh, China succeeded because China has uh, an authoritarian government, right? Uh, so the, this kind of uh, uh, disinformation, uh, you can see, has caused uh, um, a lot of uh, discontent uh, uh, from Americans toward China. Uh, so the uh, num number of people uh, now who have negative views on China account for two thirds uh, of uh, Americans. So that's uh, uh, such a sea change compared to say, even uh, three years ago, okay. So uh, uh, with all this, uh, how can we talk about uh, collaboration between the two countries. I would say probably we should work together, and not, not work together, work, the two countries should work separately uh, to contain competition, right, or to manage competition, okay? Uh, think about that in the technological arena, right? If you want to compete, you should compete like two boxers right, in the ring. 
you should not uh, first cripple the other guy and say, you come on to the stage and then let's uh, fight, okay? So uh, at least we should have some basic rule uh, for competition, okay? Uh, for that, I strongly uh, recommend that the two countries uh, uh, start the phase two talk uh, quicker, right? Uh, so we I think the two governments have almost forgotten you know, we were about to enter a phase two talk. Right? Uh, the, the phase two talk, uh, I, I don't believe is going to be concluded very soon, but as long as the two countries uh, sit at the table and talk to each other, uh, then that's uh, uh, good. Right? At least uh, you can talk uh, uh, something. Right? Okay. Uh, on geopolitical side, uh, I don't think uh, competition can be avoided right? in South China Sea, China's uh, BRI, and also you know the uh, fighting uh, uh, of the coronavirus. Uh, China's influence uh, will increase uh, for sure, and I think uh, the only thing the two countries can do is to manage this uh, competition, right? not to allow the competition to get into some uh, real confrontation, okay? Um, on the ideological side, uh, I totally agree with uh, Bob. Uh, the, the two countries have to realize we have two different systems, and then particularly uh, for Americans, uh, uh, one thing uh, that's missing is that uh, the Chinese system is built on the Chinese traditional ideas, okay? There are traditional ideas behind, okay? Uh, so we, we should not just, uh, you know, distinguish China as an orientarian uh, country, United States as a democracy. There are values behind those two systems. And I don't think that you can just uh, blindly reject the Chinese values, okay? Uh, so for that, um, I would call for, Amer yeah, call for Americans uh, to seriously uh, think about and treat the Chinese values, okay? And uh, in the words of a British uh, China scholar, Carol Brown's words, uh, is that, uh, probably it's time for the West uh, to think about uh, that uh, the Chinese values will be there for a long time. And the West has to live uh, with uh, a quite different set of values. Okay, let me stop there. The, uh, thank you, thank every, all four of you for, for very interesting presentations. First question is a two-part question, one part for the, the, the Chinese side and one part for the U.S. side. Uh, Yao Yang and Lu Feng, you know, when we were in Washington, I think it was January 12th, it was three days before the signing of phase one. Um, there was some optimism. Um, so the first question is, is there any way that China is going to be able to implement phase one? And then the question for Bob and Nick is, because I think I know the answer, is if it is not implemented, what are the implications? What is the United States going to do? What is this administration going to do? Because it's going, no matter what you think about January of 2021, phase one, 
you will know if phase one is going to be implemented before then. So first, Yao Yang and Lu Feng. Any way it could be implemented? Oh, well, I'm not an expert on trade, but uh, I have this have the gifts uh, uh, that China is still going to honor the agreement, but uh, the implementation will be prolonged. Right? Um, so it's going to be hard for China to meet uh, the target uh, set for uh, this year and the next year. Uh, probably, uh, if uh, we can extend uh, the, 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 the into like uh, uh, three years or even four years, uh, that's going to be much easier for China to fulfill agreement. Lu Feng, anything on that? Uh, uh, two, two points, two points. Number one, I think China has made a great effort in implementing the, 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 the trade, uh, phase one deal, uh, trade deal. I give you a couple of the numbers in this context. For example, uh, in the, uh, how can I say, in the quarter three, you know, the, the third quarter last year, you know, the third quarter last year, Actually, China uh, exports, uh, China imports from United States declined on the annual basis by more than thirty-one uh, percent. Okay, thirty-one percent. So uh, something like twenty-four uh, percentage points higher, you know, than the uh, overall imports of China, you know, from rest of the world. So in other words, there is a huge decline of the imports from United States. The quarter one, the last quarter, the last quarter, China's imports from United States, growth rates of China's imports from United States are equal, exactly equal, the overall imports growth rate, even though it is still below zero. It's something like, you know, and uh, negative. 3.4%. Okay. On the agriculture, especially from agriculture imports, the quarter one is something like uh, 5 billion US dollars. Okay. It's doubled, more than doubled than the first quarter last year. So that indicates China's, you know, uh, implementation and efforts are very vigorous. Okay. But it's still way below than, you know, and the 20 17, that is the 9 billion US dollars. So then the first observation for me is that actually Chinese government uh, take very seriously uh, to implement the deal. Number two, uh, I agree with Yao Yang, actually because the pandemics, you know, and uh, introduced a tremendous uh, disruption for the trade uh, plan trade plan for the overall economic environment. So, so implementation process, you know, and may be interrupted to some extent. So, I think it's unrealistic to assume that we can do that exactly according to the plan. Actually, it's totally unexpected when we signed the deal at the beginning of the. Uh, this year, you know, uh, then there's uh, out of the blue, there's a pandemic. So maybe we need to be realistic on that regard. So fortunately, we see, actually, uh, I, I have some empathy with the uh, Nick's observation, but also have some conservations. There's still some 
how can I say positive elements, you know, in the reality? Actually, on the May 8th, there's uh, talks, you know, by the form between uh, Vice Premier Liu He on China, you know, with, your, with his counterparts in United States, Mr. Heitleiser, as well as Mr. Munich. So general tone of the communique is positive. I don't know what behind the, you know, the door, but on the basis of my personal observation, if the general announced, you know, and the texts are in, 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 in positive, general speaking, it reflects the reality behind the door. So, so I think we need to be realistic. We need to allow some flexibility in implementing of the plan. Nick or Bob? Nick? Well, uh, no one's, <clears throat> the phase one agreement has two parts. One is the one we always pay attention to, the extra 200 billion in, in Chinese imports from the United States. Uh, that may or may not be possible, probably technically could be done. It would involve a huge amount of trade diversion. Uh, it's a big number, but compared to Chinese imports, which are you know closing in on two trillion a year, it's not impossible. But I would say we need to pay more attention to the fact that China has followed through on its commitments to improve, uh, you know, revise and improve the foreign trade law, increase protection for intellectual property, trademarks, uh, opening up the financial sector, which has moved ahead um, fairly strongly. And the business community is actually very happy, at least the US business community is very happy with this aspect of the phase one agreement. So. It may be a stretch to get to that 200 billion uh, over extra 200 billion over two years, but there are a lot of other dimensions of the agreement that we shouldn't lose sight of. And I think they do reflect the fact that China is moving ahead to implement the agreement. Bob. Yeah, I just had one brief comment. I agree with Nick and I also agree that the US business community seems, as far as I can tell, at least based on what our clients say, to be pleased with that. I personally think that those, the 200 billion of mandated buying was a misguided way to think about global trading relationships anyway. So whether China can fulfill them or not, I think it was a, a very badly misguided way to think about trade. Yeah, a question from um, Intel, which kind of uh, from Brian targeted at Intel, who's asking about the, the restrictions on semiconductor exports and the implications of that for China's goal of technology independence, which then touches on an article, a headline in the Wall Street Journal today, which is uh, the US can kill Huawei. And that basically over the next 12 months, we're gonna see Huawei's inability to purchase the high quality chips manufactured as I think Yao Yang said, or Lu Feng said by, by uh, Qualcomm, Intel and others is going to make it so it, it can't be a world-class company anymore. What do you think about both of those concepts, Yao Yang, Lu Feng? Oh, well, I, I think that's a misunderstanding about Huawei. You know, and, uh, so there are kind of a two, the Huawei has two parts uh, of business, okay? One is uh, the smartphone smartphone line, right? Actually, the smartphone is a new business uh, in Huawei, right? Uh, Huawei's uh, core competence uh, is not in smartphone, it's actually in the 
communication uh, devices, uh, technology like a 5G. Okay. Um, so uh, for, I think uh, if the uh, United States just uh, shut the door completely to Huawei, then probably Huawei's uh, smartphone business uh, will be severely affected uh, in the short run. Okay, that, that's almost for sure because, uh, you know, smartphones use uh, really advanced uh, chips. Uh, most advanced iPhone actually use uh, uh, five nanometer uh, chips. Okay, but uh, if we are talking about uh, the other nine uh, business, uh, Huawei, uh, Huawei, that is uh, telecommunication, we really don't need, you know, five uh, nanometer uh, 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 chips, right? I, I'm not an expert on this, but the probably 14 nanometer or even 17 or even the 21 are just enough. So that's not going. To, so the ban is not going to kill Huawei. And in the meantime, uh, Huawei is finding alternatives uh, within China. Okay. So uh, I, I want to add it to this. Uh, if the U.S. really want to go for this. That's going to force China to develop its own chips uh, industry, right? To invest heavily, heavily into this, because this is uh, the competition for the future. Okay, China can do that. Can put the tons of tons of money into that business, not in three years, but definitely in five years, or latest in seven years, China can catch up, right? And th that's not a good uh, story for American companies. Yeah. Lufang, anything on that? You got to unmute. Two, Lufang, two unmute. Points. Two points. Uh, number one, I think, of course, uh, United States he is is uh, is uh, is a superpower. If United States, you know, and using ordinary, you know, government power to cut Huawei. It will make Huawei very difficult in a lot of aspects. Okay, I'm sure about that. But uh, I don't think uh, it will kill Huawei. You know, it may be difficult. You know, slow in certain aspects. But uh, Chinese domestic market is huge. You know, and if you do that, you know, and uh, it will also like uh, also Nick mentioned. You know, it will counterproductive. You know, for United States as well. On the other hand, this, the, the, the point two, you know, I want to make is that I'm not sure whether, you know, uh, it is the definitely the final strategy adopted by the United States already. You know, there's a mix information, you know, for example, I don't know, you know, I'm not experts in this area. If you read the media that says there's some offer from the United States, you know, you can collaborate with Huawei, share, you know, all these kind of the patents, you know. Also, I don't know what will happen, you know, maybe several hours later about, you know, Mongwan. So I don't know. So I think uh, uh, the policy adopted by the United States is tough, especially the documents highlighted by uh, Nick, you know, it is issued by president, you know, I'm not sure whether it also indicates something different, you know, it's not by a, a ministry or departments, okay. Uh, sure, it's hardlining, you know, also in China, inside China, there also there's sort of the hardlining uh, tones in the policy. But on the other hand, I, I don't think that there's a no uh, flexibility whatsoever, you know, anymore. Actually, if you observe what happened in the recent months, you know, especially in the March, 
in running up to the uh, video conference of G20 summit, actually, you know, uh, we have very difficult situations in terms of, you know, where these coronavirus come about. You know, that's uh, very controversial, very sensitive. Then you observe some kind of the subtle diplomacies, you know, has been occurred on both sides, on both countries, then at least temporarily, they eased up the tension, then paved the way for the summit. So I agree the situation is very tough. It's much more complicated than beginning of this year, but I still think it's not the end of the day. Thank you. Steve, can I come in on this? Sure. I would not bet against Huawei in this circumstance, and I'd point to several things. First, according to their 2019 annual report, they had $24 billion of stockpile parts and components. Secondly, TSMC will be able to continue to deliver all of the goods that were on order prior to the time this new executive uh, decision came out of the US government. So. We don't know what that, how, how big those orders are, but they're going to continue to get very substantial shipments uh, over the next 120 days from, from TSMC. Third, TSMC is a very smart, sophisticated company. I, I, my prediction is at the end of the 120 days, TSMC is going to start applying for licenses. There's no prohibition on selling to Huawei. You have to get a license. Well, yes. is Huawei going to get a license to sell, continue to sell to Huawei? I'm betting they will. And if they don't, what's going to happen to their $12 billion investment in Arizona? They're going to slow walk it, downgrade it. This will be very bad for Trump uh, in the run-up to the election. He's claiming you know, that he's reshoring all this manufacturing. This is a big part of his strategic strategy of you know, U.S. Uh, strength in manufacturing, particularly in high tech. TSMC doesn't have to invest $12 billion in, uh, in Arizona. They may be getting a lot of incentives that hasn't been disclosed, but it will take months and months. If not, you know, the thing isn't going to be up and running it, even under the best of circumstances, until 2022. My forecast is if they don't get licenses, they will slow walk it and maybe even completely walk away from it. So. TSMC is in a stronger position than most people recognize. Remember, they announced this deal in Arizona two days before the new executive order came out uh, from the U.S. government. They knew this was coming. This investment is a way for them to gain leverage. Bob? I just add one sentence, Steve. I don't know anything about the national security issues relating to Huawei, but what I do think is that being an unreliable supplier is a highly disadvantageous place to be in the global economy over the long run. And I think that each time we do this with sanctions, we should be extremely careful because if we create in the view of global of the global economy that we are an unreliable supplier, it may serve some short-term interest, it may not, but I think sure, almost surely it will hurt us substantially over time. Yeah. I think two, two points. One, Nick's point that this is not a prohibition, it's just a requirement 
to secure a license is very, very important. And China needs to recognize this, that this is, this is not a prohibition. It's just a requirement to get a license. Bob's point with respect to sanctions raises an interesting question, which is China, and this is for Yao Yang and Lu Fang, China is moving ahead with this digital currency that PBOC has now put it in place in a, with, a bank, with, I think, construction bank in certain test areas. Is that related to financial sanctions that the United States is now, I would argue, overusing? That the use of digital country, uh, currency to the extent it internationalizes kind of protects the users from being sanctioned by the U.S. government? Well, I think uh, Yi Gang just said uh, 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 it's not the time for China to issue any digital currency, right? Uh, so I think what he was saying was that uh, China is not going to circulate uh, uh, digital currency right? uh, in the near future. Um, it's entered but, into experiments. It announced experiments that it's it's doing now. It's not, okay. yes, it's not widespread, but it's, it's entered, like China's policy is always cross the, cross the river, cross the stream by stepping on rocks, and this is kind of the first rock. Right, uh, but uh, there are talks uh, in the market uh, um, to, uh, for, for kind of a your idea, right? That, that is, uh, China should uh, create a kind of a digital currency so we can circumvent the United States, right? So we don't need to use uh, U.S. dollars, okay? So that's uh, kind of the thinking of that, but I don't know if that's in the mind of Egon. <laughs> we haven't talked with him yet. I think um, maybe. Uh, Lufang, go ahead. Maybe that is too much speculation. I think actually PBUC studied uh, to have a serious study on this digital currency issue from something like 2014. So generally speaking, the high officials, you know, in China, they are, most of them have the engineer background, different from United States, maybe from the lawyer or from others. So they are very interested in these technologies. If there's a new technology, they're very fancy about that. You know, that is the mentality of the engineering. So, uh, so I think it's, I don't think it's have anything to do with the currency war. Number two, I think uh, actually they're not experimenting on the currency, digital currency, only substitution for the uh, currency, okay, for the coins and the notes, you know, for this, you know, and the currency rather than broad money. It's not like Libra, okay. Libra is very much revolutionary, okay. That will have sort of the, you know, alternative to the US dollars if, let's assume, hopefully not, let's assume, because of this, you know, the injection of the money in a massive way, especially the debates about the modern monetary theory Okay, so if the government really adopted that, I know Bob maybe have a strong opinion of that. I don't know. No, there's a very active discussion inside China about that topic. If that happened, if that adopted as a mainstream policy in states, then something goes wrong. Maybe something like the library where safe United States in the extreme circumstances, but Digital currency experimented uh, in China now, that's only substitute 
for the currency, for the coins and the notes. You know, it's not, it's, it's so difficult to imagine Chinese government were adopted some philosophy behind the liberal. So in that words, give up or compromise on the sovereignty. It's, you it's know, very different. It's very different from Facebook. Okay, Libra, it's but, totally but, different. Yeah. So it's uh, finally, of course, Yaoya is great. It's only in the experimental phase. There's a no timeline, you know, limit, timetable for the introducing of the currency. Uh, I have a question, and then I want to uh, promote um, Professor Jada Jung to be a panelist and directly ask a question. My, my question, and while we're doing that, let me ask my question. I think there seems to be a consensus in the panel that we're in for a very dark period that is dark as it, as it is, it is going to get darker. So my question really is during this period, it may be five months, it may be a much longer period, we don't know, eight months, maybe years. What should we be doing on the economic side to kind of uh, put a floor under the deterioration? What kind of policies should we be suggesting be adopted? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, as Nick said, on the China side, uh, you know, the Chinese government has moved uh, quite decisively to open up the markets. Right? Um, so uh, when I listened to Premier Li Keqiang's uh, uh, work report, I was struck by yet another move to open up uh, the service sector. He said uh, uh, China is going to shorten, further shorten the negative risk including negative risk in the services sector. Uh, of course, uh, we don't know the government's plan uh, yet, but if uh, uh, the, that uh, negative list can be really shortened in the services sector, that's going to help American companies uh, quite dramatically. Yeah. Lufang, yeah. anything on that, or Bob or Nick? Okay, so I agree that, you know, actually at the beginning of my pre uh, talk, I said, you know, and uh, at the beginning of last year, we assumed that maybe the worst time for the Sino-US relationships is on the general election, you know, then maybe because there's a trade deal, then maybe we can gradually uh, reconcile the relationships, but now, because the pandemic, especially, you know, and the, 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 the crisis in states, you know, maybe the hawks are still getting more momentums, you know, so the situation may be significantly different, even become worse or uncertainties has been increased. But I also mentioned just now already, you know, that maybe now it's not at the moment for the totally pessimistic you know, the argument. I, st I still think at the highest uh, political levels, there's still sort of the uh, willingness, you know, and uh, not to let relationships to go out of control. So that is the current observation. So uh, given the circumstances, I think uh, the both sides maybe can do uh, several things. So number one, we should uh, control escalation of the uh, relationships in the negative uh, direction, you know, especially to manage the crisis in the issues over the issues like the Hong Kong, like the Taiwan, especially. 
So I think it's most important, you know, not uh, totally derail the relationships. Number two, I think there's still areas, especially economic areas, they both sides can collaborate. For example, I observed in the grand security issues, actually in the 2010, China banned export of the grain. You know, I, I also I wrote article to comment on that policy, criticize of the policy, but this time China did not. China actually take very active role in stabilizing that. You know, maybe there's some diplomacy behind the door, you know, persuade the Vietnam, Vietnam, you know, to uh, cancel that kind of the suspending of the uh, rice exportation. So that in that area, actually China and the US have a joint interests. You know, China want to stabilize the market, also on is on the line, you know, on the same, how can I say, on the interests of the United States, you know. On the other hand, you can see in the financial risks, actually you can see now I mentioned the, these three pillars. In the bilateral relationships, the United States provided the swaps of the currency swaps for your allies, something like more than a dozen, maybe something like a dozen countries, okay, uh, in the crisis period. China also offered swaps for maybe, you know, and 35 or 40 countries, mainly developing countries. Actually, you, you can see this complement, complementary tality, you know, and both sides do their jobs, but for the same objectives. I think both countries should emphasize these areas. They have a mutual interest. They can do, you know, similar, you know, jobs, and actually they collaborate either whether they intentionally or not. I think maybe, Steve, and you should promote these areas as the emerging sort of the agenda for, for collaboration at uh, this circumstance. Number three, I think, even for these kind of global value chain and the D uh, sort of the globalization, you know, and the momentum and become stronger and stronger. I think communities, especially academic communities in both countries should collaborate, should have some objective analysis on these issues. Number one, we must admit this crisis of pandemic reveals uh, fragility and also vulnerability of these you know, global value chain and uh, globalization, you know. We should do something to, how can I say, improve or overcome the shortcomings of the globalization. So in other words, we need to uh, looking forward, but we must make sure if we totally reverse the globalization, the cost will be huge, you know. Actually, globalization is rooted in my personal research of so-called, you know, intra-product specialization originated from United States in 60s as part of your economic restructure program. Okay, it saves costs. You know, if you want to reverse the process, you will have tremendous costs. So I think research communities on both countries can clarify these issues, you know, and to make sure that we were not do too much. Yeah. Okay. Short yeah. In that direction. Bob, anything you want to add on that? <clears throat> well, my, my advice is that 
not much can be done on the U.S. side. We're locked in. I think there's a huge potential in China. I'm very encouraged by the document that was released jointly by the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party and the State Council on May 18th, which talks about accelerating the transition to the socialist market economy. And it has within it many of the same themes that we saw in November of 2013 about making the market the dominant force in the allocation of resources, freeing up factor markets, and so forth. I think if China can demonstrate progress on that agenda, it will be extremely helpful. The fundamental premise, or a fundamental premise, of this new presidential document that I talked about earlier is that China has turned its back on economic reform, that they have not followed through on their commitments, and that they are not a market economy, and that they are distorting global markets and imposing costs on the rest of the world. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that, but one way to undermine that narrative is to reaccelerate or resume the process of domestic economic reform in China. Some of it is international, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of uh, opening up the financial sector. But I'd be very interested in either Yao Yang or Lu Feng talking about why did this document come out now? We know there's China's also had this internal debate. Should we rely more on the state or should we rely more on the market? It seems maybe it's too simplistic an interpretation that this document suggests that those that are advocating for more a return to a more market-oriented approach are getting some traction, maybe have gained the upper hand. So the, is that true or not? And if so, what's the prospect for this very ambitious agenda to move ahead? I think it won't make much difference uh, in the short run, but it could make a huge difference, particularly uh, in the next presidential term if it's not Mr. Trump. <laughs> Yeah, Yang, Lu Feng, you want to answer? Yeah. Uh, well, I think Nika has uh, actually summarized uh, this well. I, um, you know, the reform uh, has always been uh, on the government and also the party's agenda. Uh, I think uh, probably the pandemic also uh, played some role uh, here. Right, uh, to accelerate uh, the reform process. Um, uh, reading that document and also the worker report, uh, I agree with Nick that the uh, reform agenda has uh, come back uh, more strongly. Yeah, I, th I think, of course, the, the more important from a U.S.-China relations point of view, obviously reform, the third plenum reforms of the 18th Party Cong Congress, implementing those would have a positive effect on U.S.-China relations, but more opening in this period, uh, more, you know, allow, ending of equity caps, accepting, issuing licenses to U.S. financial institutions, as is going on now, would be extremely productive because I think, uh, I'm trying to remember who pointed it out, what we've seen, uh, Yao Yang pointed out, is we've seen the American public uh, turn against, turn to an unfavorable view of China. As Ya Yang pointed out, when we started these dialogues, it was in the 30s, it's now 66 percent, which is, um, which is really, which is really damaging. Um, but China could do a ton of things um, unilaterally, which would improve, um, improve the relationship. So, um, yeah, I hope I hope some of those happens. Next question is from uh, one of our 
directors, uh, Nelson Dong, um, who says, there are dozens, if who asks, there are dozens, he's a partner at Dorsey, there are dozens, if not hundreds of vaccines in development all over the world, including in the United States and China. Given the tensions and suspicions in the bilateral relationship, what is the likelihood either nation would accept and allow its own population to be vaccinated with a vaccine sourced from the other nation rather than waiting until its own indigenously developed vaccine produced and distributed under its own control? Anybody want to touch that one? <laughs> Bob? Steve, I, yeah, my view, whatever it's worth. We're in a terrible situation with respect to the mistrust in both each of our countries with respect to the other. Hopefully, reason will will win out. And if China develops an effect, uh, what seems to be an effective regime, a vaccine, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the CDC in, in our country will make an objective evaluation as to the quality and, and efficacy of, of the vaccine. But on the other hand, I think both in the political, in our current administration and publicly, I think the question's a good question. Whatever the CDC might say, there could be a lot of, uh, I think there is a possibility of a lot of animus, a lot of the reaction toward the vaccine being affected by an animus toward China. So I think it's, a, it's, just, it's, just, it's a, a good and serious question. Yeah, Yang Lufang from the other, from the other end. Would China accept one produced in the United States and distributed? Uh, definitely China will accept. Uh, and, uh, I, I think our worry is that if the U.S. Uh, has a vaccine first, then the Trump administration will ban that vaccine to be exported to, to China. No idea. I, I think what we should be thinking about in the United States is what happens if China is the first to develop an effective vaccine. I'm very interested in the program of Sinovac, Sinovac Biotech Limited, which began their phase two trials back in April and have announced that they are in talks to launch phase three trials globally. I don't know of any of, uh, of the other vaccine prospects there are that are almost on the verge of phase three trials. Now, of course, a phase three trial is no guarantee it will be successful, but at least that company, Sinovac Biotech Limited, seems to be relatively advanced compared to the other programs we're reading about. So I, I sometimes think I, if I had a chance to tell Mr. Trump, I'd say, I'd say, if I were you, I'd tone down your rhetoric. They may be the main source of the vaccine. <laughs> No doubt, Nick, he would engage with you intellectually and in a serious manner with respect to that observation. The, um, let, let's talk about, I, I think Lu Feng said we should be careful not to escalate in this, in this environment. That, you know, it's important. There's a lot of, it's hard to find constructive things to do, though I think there are a few, but it's important that we not do destructive things. There's a view in the United States that that is precisely not what China is doing, that there are a lot of policies that are changing right now and leading to even a further worsening, whether it's the South China Sea, they're, they're, they're increasing incidents there. 
the Sino-Indian border. There seem to be incidents there with respect to Taiwan, and most importantly, with respect to Hong Kong, that the, the new national security law is creating a situation where it's possible that Hong Kong will be seriously damaged economically if foreign businesses decide that they're not prepared to remain there under the new legislative environment. So what's going on there? Obviously, Hong Kong is not as important. Back in 1997, it was 20% of China's GDP. Now, I believe it's 2%. But what's going on? Why, why now? Obviously, the demonstrations have been very disruptive but they seem to have calmed down during the pandemic. Now, as a result of these proposals, they've picked up again. National security, you know, it says, of course, they want to still preserve the one country, two system, but uh, they recognized, you know, and that the current uh, system is not in line with the objectives defined by the government for the national security. I think that is just, uh, of, co of course, you know, and uh, there could be different opinions, but general argument is that on the uh, number two observation is that actually they want to have two phases of implementation. Actually, now it says the, the, the People's Congress, you know, authorized to organize a, 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 to, to creation some kind of a law in this area, but uh, we still, you know, have to wait to see, you know, whether it will do it immediately and what kind of law we have. So that is only first step. Number three, maybe there may be some calculations, you know, and uh, uh, even, you know, there's some law in that kind of direction, you know, only targeting the political aspects, you know, uh, like the Li Jiaqen recently says, hopefully that will stabilize the economic situation in Hong Kong, you know. I'm not experts in that area, you know, and uh, I know it could be very controversial, you know, and the area on which, you know, and I know the President Trump said they will have uh, new documents maybe, you know, this week, later this week. It could be some new tensions. Hopefully, they were managed uh, not too much, you know, and explosive in, in certain, to some extent. Yeah, in, a, in a Washington that is virtually devoid of bipartisan consensus, there's a consensus that the United States needs to act because of China's, because of the NPC's action on uh, on Hong Kong. But Steve, I look, I don't Hong Kong, I think, is going to be severely damaged by this if China goes ahead. But to what extent is that our business? But the, the, the thing is that uh, you know, the, uh, this uh, new uh, move uh, was actually based on uh, uh, Article 23 of the Basic Law. It was tried uh, uh, once uh, in 2003, right, uh, but failed. Uh, but uh, last year's uh, demonstrations uh, showed uh, uh, so many people, particularly some of those young people, uh, really were going to the other direction, that is uh, uh, independence uh, of Hong Kong. So I think uh, that was uh, the major uh, motivation behind this new move. 
uh, the, the new move says uh, NBC is going to pass uh, some resolution, and then the, uh, the uh, attachment uh, of the basic law, I think attachment two, uh, will adopt uh, this uh, legislation. Okay. But we don't know the specific uh, uh, contents of this uh, regulation or laws. So I think that it's uh, too early for us to talk about uh, the consequence of this new law. Yeah. I mean, to answer Bob's question, I think it absolutely is our business. There are international agreements in effect here. There are hundreds of thousands of Americans living there, their commitments that China has made. Um, but this, this program, tomorrow I believe it's, it's 8 p.m. We have a program precisely on this subject, which we, could, we will have in-depth discussion. Nick, was there anything? But I meant to focus on the economic, not on the political. Yeah, I just want to make the comment that um, if the administration follows through on the kinds of threat they're talking about, uh, of taking away certain uh, status from Hong Kong, it will have, as you've already said, Steve, a hugely negative impact on U.S. companies operating there. It will have a hugely negative impact on the people of Hong Kong, and it will have a minuscule effect on China. Uh, China does not depend on Hong Kong the way they, this is an example of where there's no weighing of the costs and benefits. We wanna impose some costs on China. Uh, if we go down this road, the main loser is going to be U.S. companies and the citizens of Hong Kong. And I don't know why we want to punish the citizens of Hong Kong for something that the government in Beijing is doing. Yes, uh, precisely. Anybody following the audit requirements that, that apparently will become uh, law for, for foreign companies listed in the United States where the prediction is we will see a delisting of Chinese companies on NASDAQ and NYSE, and do they want to comment on that and what we should be doing about that? Anybody following that? Yes, you know, locking. Uh, has caused a lot of discussions in China. And uh, on this issue, I think the uh, Chinese government is quite determined uh, to get rid of the, uh, those kind of cheating, you know, uh, frauds, uh, even uh, when they happen, say, uh, on stock markets in the United States. Uh, in the short run, uh, probably there will be a shock, but in the long run, I firmly believe this is going to be good for Chinese companies. Maybe there's a, a lot of discussion about the recent documents by uh, yeah, 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 yeah. by the by the senator, or you know about uh, you know strengthening regulation uh, with regard uh, for the Chinese and the listed companies in New York. Uh, a lot of discussion and some worrying, but uh, I think. Uh, uh, there's some also some analysis says you know uh, maybe you know and uh, there will be uh, no how can I say absolute sort of the change in the basic situation. The logic is still the similar way, uh, similar to what Nick commented about uh, just now. You know, 
So I think uh, most of the listed companies, uh, of Chinese listed companies in America, is mutual beneficial. So if you delist it for all, most of the companies, you know, I think uh, uh, the, the, the major lose will be on the U.S. side. Of course, China will also incur some kind of the losses. So maybe there will be further sort of the, the more vigorous sort of the regulation on that area, but uh, not U-turn uh, in that situation. Joan Kaufman asks, what's the playbook for coming back? Joan Kaufman's at Schwarzman Scholars. What's the playbook for coming back from the current brink in U.S.-China relations? What immediate steps and longer steps should and can be taken? Steve, I'll give you a very brief comment. I don't think anything I agree with. I think Nick said it. Others maybe have said it, too. I don't know. Nothing's going to happen before the elections. Nick, you may be right. If Trump gets reelected, maybe we'll be in the same place. I have what may be an unrealistic hope that somehow there's somebody there would get rational about our self-interest, but maybe that's, maybe that's just unrealistic. But if Biden gets elected, I think they'll be, and they should be, very focused on our self-interest, and I think they'll be realistic. But hopefully they will also see that our realistic self-interest lies in the kind of constructive relationship that I described before, and they'll reach out. Then there's, hopefully, and there are various ways they could do that. An interesting question is, what does President Xi want? Does he ultimately want to have a constructive relationship conducted within competitive but well-established international norms, or is he aiming toward regional and global domination? And I think that uh, that's a very big question, which will remain to be seen if, in fact, we have an administration that does reach out to him. Yeah. Anybody else want to comment on that? Then I, otherwise, I have a question from Mike yeah, Lamb. I think even after general election, I don't think we can sort out all the structural, you know, and the problems behind two sides. Uh, I think the best uh, prospects we can hope is stabilizing the situation to allow the the the, the, the both sides to evolve, you know, and uh, for some time to come. Yeah, I mean, you know, I wrote a piece, which you're all welcome to really read in the South China Morning Post, where I said economic... I read that. I read that. It's very good. It's very good. Uh, <laughs> well written article, you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. economic and diplomatic competition are fine. We have them. It's okay. But, but China does not pose an existential threat to the United States, nor does the United States pose an existential threat to China. And characterizing each as existential threats to the other has damaging implications for the peoples of China and the United States. That's the, 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 sh the short summary of a much longer piece. Um, Mike Lampton is asking Bob, uh, Mike is former president of the committee, the director of the committee. What advice would you give the Biden campaign in light of the Clinton campaign experience in 92 and 93 and boxing itself in on NFN, MFN, and then taking the first part of its first term, digging out of that mess? mess. How can you, how do we, do we least damage, how do we do the least damage in this campaign that restricts subsequent Flexible. Well, look, it, it's a good question. And I think, unfortunately, this campaign is, is going down a very bad road. Um, so it's a good question. It, it's become pretty clear, I think, that Trump intends to engage in all kinds of criticism of China, 
perhaps to deflect attention from the way he's dealt with the coronavirus epidemic in the United States, although there's plenty to blame in China's part too. But I think he's using this as a way to deflect, my impression would be to deflect attention. And I think the Biden people, I'm not involved in the Biden campaign. I suspect you'll see them engage in some sort of a response that is also negative with respect, in some respects, to the China-U.S. relationship. I think we just got to get past that, Mike. And once we get past it, then it seems to me that if Biden gets reelected, or gets elected, rather, that there are just a lot of ways that he could reach out, while at the same time being very aware that we need to know what is Xi's reaction going to be. Is he trying to develop regional and global domination over time, or will he be responsive to the effort to construct a relationship? I think there are a lot of ways that they could reach out, and then you can see what Xi's reaction would be. He's going to do what's in his electoral self-interest right now, and I believe that's right for him to do. And at the same time, I think he's a very thought—I at least think that he's a very thoughtful individual with respect to these issues. And I think he'll be very focused on our self-interest. I'm repeating myself. Very focused on our self-interest that he should be. But that in that context, he will see whether there is an opportunity to work effectively with China and whether China is responsive to that, to an effort in that direction. Be my impression. I don't have any knowledge. Just my impression. From uh, Fordham Law School, William Janis asks, is there more U.S.-China economic and investment cooperation below the headlines? So I guess it's for, for, for Nick or, or Yao Yang or, well, I guess any of you. Is there stuff going on which the media is just not talking about and it's not as horrible as it seems on the surface? Well, I'll just I'll give you one one perspective, and that is if you talk to the working level people at USTR, they are very optimistic about their relations with their counterparts. There are many of the technical questions. They're practically in daily contact, trying to overcome different issues on implementation of phase one. Uh, and I think this is part of the reason that uh, uh, Mr. Lighthizer and, and Liu He were able to say that they think we're still going to be able to implement phase one. They're working very hard behind the scenes. You never read about any of these people in the newspapers and you never read anything about exactly what they're doing, but they're in very intense uh, cooperative uh, discussions about many of the issues involved in the implementation of phase one. They don't have any difficulties uh, communicating. And I think on each side, they're making the best efforts to get the, get the agreement uh, implemented. So that, that's one example, one agency of the US government. So it, it's not necessarily indicative of what's, what's happening elsewhere. Tetra, Tetra is very happy about the investment in Shanghai. I visited that site of the investment. You know, it's, it's going very, very quickly. And also, you know, and the uh, time schedule of production has been implemented, uh, you know, even better than planned. So that is also a piece of the evidence indicates, you know, not all the things and going wrong. Um, last question, which is, which is a great one, because we're out of time, um, which comes from our executive vice chair, Hank Greenberg, which is, doesn't it make sense where this relationship is that, that President Xi and, and President Trump should speak because of the, the absolute downward spiral that we're in that, that, that Hank is basically saying, this is what we need to do, have the two speak? 
I'm not sure you're going to get the two leaders to speak to each other, but I do think what we're solely, surely lacking uh, in recent years has been any sustained high-level dialogue on a range of issues, including economics. Yes, the working-level talks uh, between USTR and their counterparts seem to be working fairly smoothly, but we don't have high-level talks uh, between uh, leaders on both sides. There's no structure. We've abandoned all of the uh, programs that were tried in early administration. Yeah, maybe they weren't 100% successful, but I think we'd be much better off if we had more sustained high-level contacts uh, between the two sides, whether or not it involves President Trump and President Xi. Steve, I agree with Nick, and, and, and Hank is an extraordinarily shrewd observer of U.S.-China relations, but I kind of think everything is going to be driven by politics from now until November. In the U.S., I mean. Yeah, I tend to agree with Bob. Uh, we're not going to see anything uh, substantial uh, happening before November. Uh, because Trump really wants to play this uh, China card in his, for his campaign. Yes, I agree. Yes, I agree. Generally speaking, I agree. Yes. Well, the sun is now brightly shining in New York. Um, I wish I could say the same on the U.S.-China economic relationship, but this has certainly shed an enormous amount of light on the relationship. I think the answers have been, I thank Yao Yang and Lu Feng for staying up close to midnight and educating our very large audience in the United States. I thank Nick and Bob for, for being here this morning. It has been a truly wonderful uh, panel. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Bob. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.